My kids would laugh if they knew you clapped. They'd clap for me at the dinner table. <laughs> I graduated in 1985, so that makes me ancient. Um, most of the profs that I had back here it was Ontario Bible College at the time, and we were praying and hoping for accreditation so that our degrees would count for something. And most of the profs that I have had here either retired or in, in heaven, so that makes me uh, old. I'm talking to people that I have a three-year-old right on up to a 24-year-old, so some of you are the same age as my kids, so I will try not to be boring and to think of uh, things to share with you today in our lives and our stories that what my goal is is help you to help you to see a glimpse of our Father in such a way that when, um, when you look to where God is going to lead you after Tyndale, um, you can have real excitement for the plan that he has, that, that he has already written for you, that, that you don't, can't even dream of. We came on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Power to Change. Um, the word crusade in there was causing a lot of problems with uh, ministry within Islam because the history of the Crusades was go out and slaughter people in the name of Christ. So we had to take that out for the safety of our staff and around the world. And our job was to travel and show the Jesus film. And so we had lots of fun going into Brazil, Guyana, South America, Mexico. We'd go in the bush, go down the Amazon River, swim with the piranhas, show the Jesus film. And then we had kids. And when our first son came, we realized that it's really hard to do that kind of a lifestyle when you have to worry about the water that your baby's drinking, or in the bathtub, whatever. Um, and so we asked to be placed in one spot where we could minister. And we were challenged to go to Nigeria, West Africa. Nigeria is a beautiful, beautiful country of hardship and beauty. The people are awesome. The ministry is great, but the culture has a lot of African traditional religion. It's not a country like Kenya that is open to tourism. You cannot come in unless you are a national or unless you have a letter of invitation from someone who lives in the country. Uh, it is one of the fourth richest oil countries in the world. So if you take out the nations that have Islam as their primary religion, Nigeria is number one for the producer of oil. And yet at the same time, it is one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. We were living first in the bush, where we were the only white people of 100,000 people around. And at the end, in a city of 13 million, projected to be the largest city in the world by 2020. Um, we went in to minister there, and lots of fun things. My husband taught theology at the seminary. I worked a lot with the pastor's wives because it's more important to marry within your tribe than within your faith. And so we would have Igbos and Hausas and Yorubas that were married to people that didn't believe in Christ. And so I worked a lot with the pastor's wives, a lot with the children. Um, lots, I mean, when you live in Africa, there's always people at your door for fresh water. You, you end up being a medical doctor. You end up being everything because they have so little, at least in the country that we were in. But it got to the point after eight years there where we had to come back. And the reason we needed to come back is we had a nine-year-old who wore his heart on his sleeve. I was a good African wife. I had given my husband no girls, just boys. So I was worth a zebu, two cases of minerals, which is pop, and some tubers of yam. I was highly esteemed for only having male children. But my second son, Everything he saw ripped his heart out. 
He would see the kids begging in the market. He would see um, the little ones on what looked like skateboards with flip-flops on their hands, pushing themselves along uh, because they didn't have wheelchairs that could go through the potholes. He would see the kids on the street begging at night, and if you gave them bananas, they would put all the bananas together and take them to sell them for money because at the end of the evening, whichever kids brought in the least amount of money um, were then abused. And so the hardship and the pain that he saw, he was just crying every night. And we thought, we need to leave. And we prayed because we didn't feel God wanted us to go. But at the same time, we didn't want to lose our greatest disciples, who are our children. And then there was a knock at our gate. And no one was home except jo Joshua and I. And we went to the gate to see who it was. And there was a lady standing there with a bundle of pink blankets. And she handed me a baby. And she said, do you know how to feed a straight-haired baby? I was the only person in our whole village that had straight hair. Josiah was born at four pounds. His thigh was smaller than my thumb. I looked at this baby, and I had never in my life seen a child so small. His face was the size of an egg. This is a picture of Josiah. And I looked and I thought, if I say no, this baby will die. And in my heart, with absolutely no pressure at all, God said, yes, he will. It wasn't a, yes, he'll die, so you need to take him. It was a total pressure-free, yes, he will. And so we adopted Josiah. What I want to share with you today is how that one action did more in our ministry than anything we did for the 15 years we stayed there. We moved back in 2006 to get our oldest two into university. They'd never lived in North America, so we thought, having lived in the bush in Africa, we better uh, adjust them to the lifestyle a little instead of just sending them off to university. And um, we're planning on heading back within a year with our five youngest to go back for five more years. But um, God knew when he brought Josiah into our lives that Joshua needed to hold one child. And he knew that Josiah needed to be held. And the two of them are so bonded and so close. But what that did is it, we just never imagined the impact it would have on the society. Because in African t traditional religion, they, they, at least in, I know West Africa. So in West Africa, nobody adopts. You, you don't adopt at all. Because if you adopt, you could be bringing an evil spirit into your home. In African traditional religion, males are so important. That's why I was thought of as a good wife, because... Um, the spirit is passed on through the family name. So the spirit is passed on through the male. So if you invite another child into your home, you don't know what spirit you're inviting in. You could be spiting, in, inviting evil into your home. And that evil will be there through all eternity, through your ancestors um, or your future ancestors, to take care of the next generations. And so first off, to abandon a boy is very un unheard of. But to take that child then into your home where your name will be passed on to them is, is just, it's not done at all. And people stood back and watched us. And they waited for the evil to happen in our lives. And it didn't. And then there was a fire. What happened was the government decided to build a bank. And so while people were at church, they lit the whole squatter's village, dumped gasoline around it, lit it on fire went to the churches and said, 
You have 24 hours to get your belongings out. You're living on land that doesn't belong to you. We're going to bulldoze it down. It was premeditated because nothing fast happens in Africa. But within 36 hours, posters were put up and bulldozers had flattened everything. Six people lost their lives in that fire. There was a little girl looking after her baby brother. There was a woman, an older woman, who had come out of the hospital and wasn't able to move, like wasn't able to get herself out fast enough. And when that fire happened, it flipped my world upside down because the oil company, um, the people in the oil companies live on compounds. They don't live with the nationals. So the people from the oil company started bringing pots and pans and books and clothing and reaching out to all these people who were displaced. But where do you put that stuff when you don't have a home? You come and you get clothing for your children and you get food and you get pots. And what do you do with it? Where does it go? And so a family of five moved in with us while we stored all this stuff. We just kept cramming kids in bedrooms and storing stuff in their bedrooms. And my kids are really flexible. And as, as that family of five lived with us, they saw that we didn't treat Josiah any different any differently than our birth children. And so when the homes were rebuilt and they went back into the village, they said, you know, we lived with the white family. And when Josiah's in trouble, he's disciplined just like the rest. And when it's Josiah's birthday, he gets gifts just like the rest. And if Josiah teases his brother, he's in trouble just like the rest. And it works. And so what they did is, if they had multiple wives, the wives started treating the other wives' children the same. Um, Sometimes if you couldn't provide for your family, the husband would, the, the wife's, the father-in-law would take his chil- the children away. And then when the husband got a job, he would send the children back again. And so you could be married and all of a sudden children arrive for you to take care of, or your brother's killed in a car accident and all of a sudden you inherit his children. And so that's the the social net that they have in a society where there isn't, um, the government doesn't take, to have the money to take care of its own or the money's been, has walked, as we would say. Um, and what happened is, in all the different life situations, cultural differences that I would never understand, people started treating the children as if they were their own. Now, just to show you how deeply embedded in the culture this is, I was leaving the airport. I had a passport for my son. This is an airport that British Air, Lufthansa, everybody flies into. I go through customs, I've got my ticket, and the last security check, they're not letting me leave with my son because he's not my own pickings. He's black and I'm white. And nobody will let my son get on the airplane. The pilot won't let him, the stewardesses won't let him, the security won't let him because he's black and I'm white. And we would say in our minds, it's not possible, but it happened. And I said, but I adopted him. Didn't matter. I had adoption papers with me. Didn't matter. You know what made a difference? I chatted with the man. I asked him about his family. I asked him about his kids. We just chit-chatted back and forth, back and forth. I said, are you Christian or Muslim? He said, ah, madame, I am Christian. I love God. God loves me. I said, ah, you don't look Jewish to me. He said, I'm not Jewish. And I laughed. I said, then you're not Christian. He said, I am so. I said, no, 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 no. Only the Jews are God's people. The rest are adopted. And he smiled. And he started to cry. 
And he said, you're right, I am God's own pickings. And then he sat down, kneeled down, looked at Josiah, who was about five years old at the time, tears running down his cheeks, where are they taking my mummy? Looked him in the face and he said, you go with your mummy because you are her own pickings. And they let us get on the airplane. The impact that that adoption had on the culture was far beyond what we ever could have taught. My husband was there teaching theology, but life meant so much. I'll tell you another place that makes a difference is in Saudi Arabia. Because in Saudi Arabia, within the Islamic faith, there's either four or five pillars of the faith, and you do those four or five things with the hope that Allah will let you in. Now, if you die in a holy war, you're guaranteed um, that you'll get into paradise. But the rest is, you do these things, and if you're fortunate, Allah will sweep everything under the rug and you'll get in. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's what it breaks down to. So one of the pillars that both the Sunnis and the Shiites hold is praying five times a day. Another pillar is making a trek to Mecca. One is giving alms to the poor. So if you believe, if your doctrine says that you have to do these four or five pillars of the faith, what happens when you live in Saudi Arabia and the money is split, the oil money is split between every Saudi national and there are no poor people? How do you earn your way to heaven? You know what they do? Does anyone in here know what they do? Now, I, don't, I haven't been to Saudi Arabia, but I have a friend who's a pharmacist there um, because you can't be free to be a missionary there, so he's a pharmacist. What he tells me they have is a section of town where it's all fenced off, and they import beggars. So you can go and give alms to the poor and earn your way to heaven. So I want to share with you from 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. It says this. Watch your, watch, well, I'll, I'll read from 15. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, what we believe is very, very important, because it forms our opinions. But what we believe affects how we live. So at one point in our lives, um, there was an activist Islamic act activist group within the north that tried to remove Josiah from our home. He was six weeks old, and they tried to put him on the streets as a beggar, and if he died, he would die. But he was to grow up as a beggar because that's what Allah willed. Because how dare we step in to fate and take a child out who has been preordained to be a beggar? Because what happens if someone goes by to give alms and you have removed Josiah? He's not there to give alms to, and they miss out on paradise. What we believe will affect our lives and how you live your lives, whatever ministry God has for you when you leave here, regardless of what that looks like. And it can be, I mean, the world is a puzzle and you're one piece of it. So it could be anything. But when you live your life, if your doctrine is solid, which you're learning here, and you live it, the impact you will have will be far beyond what your words could ever say, ever say. So your doctrine is important, but your life is very. I want to share with you as well just a few um, highlights from Josiah's story. 
our goal in getting Josiah's story out, that's a whole process in itself. Um, we did have it, a publisher was in the States, was promoting it, and at one point they asked us to take Jesus Christ out of his story and just make it a generic God so that it would have a better reception across the board. And when we said no, the, um, it was a book in a book of a chapter of six. It, the whole book was rejected. And from there, God has gone on and expanded it, and, and we've seen it published. And we believe God's using it as a tool for evangelism because there's so many miracles in Josiah's life that people get caught up in the story and then they aren't offended when they hear the gospel. So non-Christians are reading it and saying, oh, have you read about Joey? And they don't really realize, like they're not offended that you're, you know, quoting Bible verses and very clearly by the end of the book they get that it's through Jesus Christ and that each one of us is as important to God as Josiah is. But Josiah was born deaf, totally deaf. At, at 12 weeks old, he rolled over and opened his mouth and laughed and got 100% hearing. At that point, he was no longer deaf. I will never, ever forget standing in the room. He was, we had a waterbed, because if you want to stay cool in Africa, you have a waterbed with no heater. So he was laying on the waterbed, and he rolled over, and he laughed, and we just couldn't believe it. We took him right away, got him tested, 100% hearing. Why would he be born deaf? Well, two other babies were found with him, and they were both eaten by wild animals. See, when you don't cry, and you've urinated all over yourself, you don't have a smell to attract animals, and you don't have a noise to attract animals. Josiah was born in the rainy season. We went to church on Sunday, and the, in, in the area that we lived in, everybody just made up their birthday and made up their age. So the oldest man apparently was 139 years old. I don't believe he was. Um, but if he was, he was the most energetic 139-year-old I've ever met. But he was the oldest, and he could never remember it not raining in the rainy season. And that's hard to understand in a season, a country where there's four seasons, but in the interior, it's different when you're near the ocean, but in the interior, in the rainy season, God gives the rains in season, and it rains, and you can almost time it on your, on your watch. And on Saturday night, there was no rain, and on Sunday morning, the people at church were afraid because they could never remember a night when it hadn't rained. Josiah was born. His umbilical cord was yanked off him. He was left outside naked at four pounds, and the God of the heavens stuck out his right hand and stopped the rains. In Isaiah 49, 15 and 16, it says, I'll read it to you. And with this, I, I won't keep you long, I promise. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the one she has born? I have eight children. I birthed three, and we have had five appear at our doorstep, um, almost literally. Uh, I can say, yes, a mom can abandon her baby, but to nurse your baby and then abandon your baby, I say no, not possible. God goes on and says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
our God, our Father, looks down and he looks at sin, abandonment, whatever it happens to be, and he's not afraid of it. He looks at it straight in the face and he steps into the situation and he does something about it. And as I get to know my Father, I get to know his Son, who has me engraved on the palms of his hands with the nail marks. And if he doesn't step into a situation, I can trust that my Father knows best. I'm here today to encourage you to get to know your Father better, no matter how deep your walk is with him. You are just beginning to understand how deeply, deeply you are loved. Just as Josiah has a story, God is writing the story of each and every one of us. And as you get to know the Father, your doctrine will be solid. Your lives will point people to Christ. And when you get to heaven, you'll not only hear, well done, good and faithful servant, but you will see the pieces of the chain that you have been. You might introduce someone to God, the concept of God for the first time. You might be further, a further link on that chain to share Christ with them. You might be the final link that the Holy Spirit uses to bring someone to Christ. But what God can do through the potential in this room, if he could do it with 12 disciples and lose one in the process, so do it through 11. Think of what he can do through the power in this room of his Holy Spirit in you. And so I encourage you, study your doctrine, but let your lives really shine for Christ. Thank you. I'm going to close this in prayer, and you can go. I'm going to go down to the bookstore and see if they'll sell Joey's story. If they do, you can get it there. If they don't, and you were interested in it, um, just Google Cry of the Outcast. It's for sale on Amazon and through Christian bookstores, through Power to Change. The money from the book goes right back to ministry in Africa. So um, that's we want to use it for evangelism, and we have um, things there that we want to do. So that's where the money's going. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that with all that goes on in the world, with every detail, every life, every circumstance, that you stopped and reached out your hand to stop the rain for Josiah. Thank you, Lord, that with how great that was and how necessary, you're also concerned with every little detail, whether it be a test or an assignment um, or an appointment that we have to go to, it doesn't matter. You are so involved in our lives. Father, we give our hearts to you and ask that you would continue to lead and guide us so that at the end of our lives, we would not be focused on, but that the glory would go to you and you would be able to bring more people into your kingdom through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.